Mark 5, verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerizines. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains. But he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. When they saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirits. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and the the country, and the people came to see what it is that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. For he was getting into, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had, the demon, uh, who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. And he, Jesus, did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim to the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. You can be seated. Let's pray. We ask for God's help and God's wisdom as we process this passage together this morning. Our gracious God, I thank you so much for, uh, again, the privilege we have this morning to be together. Just recognize that... uh, Lord, there are, there are times where you present us with unique stories in the Bible, ones that uh, present questions that are unique, strange. Um, and yet, Lord, behind each of these is a reminder to us of your immense grace, of your immense mercy. Uh, how you are a God who pursues broken sinners like us. And so it's just my prayer in these next few brief moments that we have together today that you would help us keep that front and center. That we would be reminded that you are the God who pursues those who need restoration. 
that there are probably some even in this room this morning who need that saving grace and that saving mercy in their life even today. And for others, Lord, who just need to be able to tell and share of your goodness to those around them. So help us this morning as we seek to unpack this together. Give me strength. I'm tired. I'm weak. Uh, This has not been one of the most efficient lessons to put together. And so I pray that you would use my weakness to proclaim your glories. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you have ever heard of a guy by the name of Danny Thomas? His name Danny Thomas sound familiar to you? Greta, what do you know about Danny Thomas? Really nothing. Really nothing? You've heard the name? Okay, well that's at least good. Anybody else heard of the name Danny Thomas before? Okay. Um, Don't know what Danny Thomas was famous for? I'll give you guys a little bit of a hint. The year was 1962, and Danny Thomas decided to start a hospital in Memphis, Tennessee, to treat supposedly incurable children's diseases. Do you know what he named that hospital? St. Jude. Most of us in this room, if not all of us, are probably familiar with St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital down in Memphis. But the question is, why is it that Danny Thomas, why did he name the hospital St. Jude? Yeah. Absolutely, yeah, very good. Yeah, in Roman Catholicism, St. Jude was considered to be the patron saint of hopeless causes. Patron saint of hopeless causes. The reason adopted that name is it really speaks to the desperation that many families felt and experienced with the physical condition of their sick children that were being brought there, understanding that really they needed a miracle. They needed God's intervention because they were to the point of desperation. It's interesting because many Bible teachers have talked about Mark chapter 5, what we just read, or at least the first half of Mark chapter 5. They've referred to Mark 5 as the St. Jude chapter of the New Testament. Again, adopting that language and that title because it speaks to the increased desperation experienced by the characters front and center in these next few stories that we're going to look at in Mark chapter 5. Right, so oh, I had a picture there. Thank you. Um, but Mark chapter five here, we begin to really see. We saw last week with chapter four, we saw the desperation on the part of the disciples. Right, we saw the the, the condition that they were in. We saw that their lives were at stake. But now we start to see over these next couple of encounters that Jesus has, especially in Mark chapter 5, that the condition of these people becomes all the more desperate and destitute. doesn't mean that other people weren't in desperate states earlier in Mark, but Mark begins to do what I talked about earlier on in the gospel uh, of Mark, where Mark tends to give a lot more detail to stories. He didn't do so at the front end, but now he's going to start to do that. And he's going to really bring you into the story to feel that point of desperation. 
And so that's why we need to be reminded as we look at Mark chapter 5 this morning that the power of Jesus is intended to bring hope to the most desperate of sinners. The power of Jesus brings hope. It brings hope. When you look at the authority and the power of Jesus, its intended purpose for you is to drive you towards greater hope, not greater despair. It's intended for you to take it and to experience it and then be changed by it forever rather than to shrink away in fear. And we're going to really see both of those things on display in the story as we look at it here. Mark, again, mentioned he's going to begin to kind of catapult you into the story and into the situation so you can kind of feel the desperation that everyone in the story is experiencing. Now, I'm going to acknowledge up front that this is, as we read already, a kind of strange story. I think this is maybe the second or third time I've taught this in student ministries over the years, and I acknowledge this every time. This is a weird story. There are some things that happen in this story that are odd, and for some of you, might be really sad, and for a lot of us, just really confusing and disturbing, and it's going to raise a lot of questions that I will be honest, I cannot fully answer, and I feel a little bit of relief because I know that a lot of the guys who I read and study with, they don't have the full answers either, and that's okay. But my desire for you is to not get hung up on some of the peripheral things, the things that could become a distraction to you. I want you to keep this idea front and center as we walk through the story this morning, right? That the power of Jesus is intended to bring hope to the most desperate of sinners. So with that said, let's jump into it together in what we would call maybe the first scene in verses 1 through 5 where we see a most desperate Situation, a most desperate situation. Now, notice here in verse 1, very first line here, they came to the other side of the sea. This is the Lake of Galilee, by the way, to the country of the Gerasenes. Now, stop right there. Remember last week the story that we talked about. So, Jesus, the crowds, everybody's getting kind of rowdy uh, in the, the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Jesus says, let's get into the boat and let's cross to the other side. So uh, if you think about uh, this being like the Sea of Galilee here, Jesus has been doing his ministry up here by my pinky, right? So he's been doing ministry up there and he says, let's cross to the other side. Uh, So Sea of Galilee is about 13 miles long, about seven miles wide. He says, let's go across the sea. They're going down here to this south east. Got to think about that on my hand here. Southeast corner to this country of the Gerasenes. Now, they make it through, but we know that they made it through kind of in a very uh, nerve-wracking experience, right? Jesus takes them through the storm really in many ways to refine and to test their faith and to remind them of how just dependent they are upon him and how they need to trust him. Now, they come to this region of the Gerasenes, and what's important to understand about this region that they're in now is that they're no longer what we would uh, consider to be on uh, 
allied territory. This region here is what we would call Gentile land. And if you don't know what that means, just remember that the nation of Israel, where Jesus lives, they are Jews. They are Israelites uh, by nature. Uh, but surrounding Israel and some of those regions uh, were what we call Gentiles. And really, Gentile is just a fancy word for non-Jew. Right, So anybody who was not Jewish by nature, and to them, Gentiles were considered to be unclean. They were off-limits, right? This is, they're no good, uh, which becomes significant later on when Jesus eventually commissions and he saves and he does things for Gentiles, especially like we're going to see in our story this morning here. But this is the area where they land. And if you're in the disciples' position, you're like, oh, land, finally, land. And then you see where they land. <laughs> you see where they come up on shore. And I love this. Verse 2, when they had, uh, sorry, when Jesus stepped out of the boat, immediately, again, one of Mark's favorite words there, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. So... This is such an interesting thing for Jesus and his disciples. One of the big themes here in this uh, chapter is the theme of unclean. Uh, in the Jewish culture, one of the worst possible things to be declared was unclean, uh, ceremonially or ritually. Uh, the idea of unclean means that you are not fit to to worship until you are cleansed of your impurities. And so this is what connected you to God is being clean. And so if you were declared unclean, that's, that's no good. And Jesus brings them into a situation here of utmost uncleanliness. Uh, what kind of uncleanliness? Well, first of all, as we talked about, they're in unclean territory. They're in a region that's surrounded by Gentiles, people who are not Jews. So that's already kind of taboo, no good that we're around these types of people. Uh, it's amplified by the fact that they are now met by a guy with an unclean spirit, meaning that he has a demon that is possessing him. And we've talked about this before. There's a lot of times in uh, Mark's gospel already in just four chapters that we've seen that uh, demon possession was something that happened often with people here. I mean, it's, it's amazing how common it was in this culture here. Uh, but this guy, the spirit that dwells within him, is not clean. So there's that, too. Add to that that they are in an unclean area because the area that they land just off the shore here <laughs> is what? It's essentially a graveyard. It says that they are among the tombs. Uh, in the Jewish culture, to be uh, around a dead body or to touch a dead body was considered to make you unclean. That's why you see things like in the parable that Jesus tells of the uh, Good Samaritan. You notice the first two guys pass by because, well, I can't touch a dead body. Or at least they thought he was dead or that he was going to die. And so they're like, oh, I don't want to defile myself. And so they pass by on the other side. It's the same idea here, right? Being amongst the dead and all these corpses I mean, this is kind of like out of a horror film, by the way, right? Like, it's like you, you finally see the land, the fog clears, and you're like, oh, no. <laughs> Just amongst the graveyards. And if all of this is not bad enough, anybody know what the last thing that makes this situation even more unclean? 
Yeah. There are pigs. There are pigs, unclean animals. There are a, what we would call a plethora of pigs that are gathered there near the tombs. And, see, and seriously, you can't make this stuff up. If you're the disciples, you're, you're thinking to yourself, could this day get any worse, right? We just survived by the, the skin of our teeth, and we finally reached land, and this is the situation that we're met with. Pigs were unclean because uh, God, back in Leviticus, they had dietary restrictions, and pig was not kosher. It was not something that they were allowed to eat. I know what you're thinking. Poor Jews, right? All those delicate meats that they were not entitled to. That's okay. They didn't really care, but they, they did care about remaining very clean. And so this was very taboo for them. Pigs were very much off limits. But what, what Mark really focuses in on this desperate situation at this point is not so much the pigs, not so much the tombs, although those things are very real. He focuses in on this man with the unclean spirit. Notice his description and the way that he talks about this man with the unclean spirit. Now, Mark, it's interesting, even though Mark gives us a lot of detail, Mark doesn't give us one detail that seems kind of strange, is that Matthew tells us that there's actually two guys that are possessed by demons here. Uh, Mark does not talk about both men. He just talks about this one, probably the guy who's more the, the leader of the two of them, right? Probably the one who is most central to the story, and he focuses in on him. I want to be very clear, this story is not a lesson on demons. Uh, we cannot allow that to be our focus and our distraction in this story. This story is about a broken man in Satan's grasp who needs to be broken free. And his condition is as desperate as they come. I just take a moment to think about all the way that Mark describes this man's hopeless situation. First of all, it says that he dwelt among the tombs. His home was in a graveyard. He wasn't dead yet himself, but he lived among the dead. He had been banished from his homeland and designated to live amongst corpses, basically saying, we're just kind of waiting for you to die. It says that he was unable to be bound. This demon possession was so strong, this guy had... <laughs> He had broken chains. He had broken shackles. You probably imagine that he probably even had like those uh, shackles still even around his wrist, but chains like still flapping around because they tried to subdue him, right? And they could not do so. He would just snap them. Shows you that they treated this guy in many ways like an animal. In fact, that very word for subdue is the word that is used in the Bible to talk about uh, the breaking of an animal. So think about like horses, right? I don't know if you guys watch like the Kentucky Derby or any of those like annual horse races. But in order for a, a horse to race and be competitive in those things, you have to break them. Obviously, you're not like actually physically like hitting them or breaking, but like to break a horse means that you have to train them. They're wild and you have to be able to set them apart for that specific purpose. And so that shows you they were treating this guy because of his condition, like an animal. They were trying to break him. 
so that he could be somewhat civilized. And unfortunately, nobody could do that. It says that he spent his life amongst the tombs, screaming, walking around, cutting himself, perhaps trying to get the demons out of him. And he was a threat to other people. That's why he was isolated. I mean, think about that for just a moment. This is a guy who potentially had a family. This guy was a son to somebody. He was potentially a a husband to a wife, a father to children. We don't know that, but it's very possible that his life was completely changed and turned upside down forever because of Satan's rule and reign in his life. We have here a man deeply marked by shame and suffering, naked, despairing, hurting, lonely. I mean, this is the image of God distorted. This is not the way it should be. You know, we often make light of demons in our culture. It becomes kind of a form of entertainment to us. Turn it into movies and television shows, and we laugh at it or we allow it to entertain us and to scare us. Think about what it was doing to this guy. This, this, this was his life. I mean, just imagine the, the hurt that he was experiencing here and how this so often displays for us, really what the scriptures speak of for anybody who is living in sin, for everyone who is born into this world. You know what Ephesians chapter 2 reminds us of? Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once lived. In other words, you were dead, but you were alive. We call that maybe spiritual zombie, right? You were alive, but you were dead. I mean... That's a pretty graphic illustration that I think almost reminds us of what this guy was. He was alive, but he was among the dead. And again, can you just imagine the disciples in this situation? I, I think to myself, what if Jesus turned to him after like this guy started to like, approach them? And Jesus looks at them after everything they had just gone through on the, the, the Sea of Galilee and just said to them, do you still want to follow me? Are you sure you still want to do this? They would be just a bit freaked out. It's an incredibly desperate situation for everybody involved, which leads us then into a most amazing transformation we read here in verse 6, and when, G, and when he, that being the demon-possessed guy, saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. I don't take this to mean that he came up to Jesus in an act of worship to him. Uh, the fact that he ran towards Jesus, uh, we learn here that uh, Jesus had been saying to him once he saw him that he was trying to uh, call the demon out of him. And so I don't know if this is a guy's way of approaching Jesus, thinking he's going to try to take him out. But notice as he approaches, all he can do is fall in submission before him. It's not homage or, or worship. 
Uh, it's an act of submission because he knows that he's in the presence of the one who truly has authority over him. Jesus asked him, it's so interesting here, that in the midst of all of this, Jesus takes the time and he asks this guy, what is your name? Now notice the guy does not say what his name is, but the demon speaking through him speaks on behalf of him. I do think it's interesting. It's not that Jesus doesn't know what this guy's name is, but he does so so that he can purposely reveal to us the exact desperation and situation that this guy is going through here. But he takes the time to ask him, and notice what his response is in verse 9. Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. I have to admit, that probably would have been an extremely terrifying moment to hear those words come out of his mouth, right? I can only imagine what that would have been like in that situation. My name is Legion, for we, notice he's talking in the plural, we are many. A legion, the reason why that would have terrified them when they heard this is because a legion was considered to be a group of up to 6,000 Roman soldiers. So by him saying, my name is Legion and we are many, is meant to drive us to the point that this guy is not filled with just one demon, maybe two demons, but quite possibly thousands of them, which is why he is so strong, why he is so desperate, why he is so difficult to subdue. I don't even, I, I can't even begin to fathom what that would have meant for one person. It shows us his condition was so bad. And the response showed that he knew that Jesus had both power and authority. Because notice what he said. He begged him, and that being, he begged Jesus earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now, other of the gospel writers, when they record this, talked about uh, him saying, have you come to destroy us before the appointed time? In other words, these demons knew that their time was numbered. We were to go off into a study of the Bible and what the Bible teaches on this, we learned that uh, God has appointed a time when Satan and all his demons will be finally and eternally judged and punished forever. And here we have this group of demons saying to him, are you going to destroy us before the appointed time? I mean, you know the rule book. You, you know what you're supposed to do, right? You can't destroy us now. And yet they still recognize that Jesus is God. And he is one who has ultimate authority over him. And that's why they're earnestly saying, don't send us out of the country. Don't, don't send us away. Don't, don't, don't do that. Don't know why they wanted to inhabit this region. But we notice that they don't really want to be absent of, oh, way to say it, absent of a home, or we could say a host. Um, we learn throughout scripture that demons desire for some place to dwell and so they're like okay if we can't be in this guy what's the next best option well mark tells us in verse 11 <laughs> now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside a great herd of pigs and they begged him saying send us to the pigs let us enter them 
Talk about a weird request. Why they wanted to go to the pigs, I do not know. I think they probably knew that Jesus wasn't obviously going to send them into the herdsmen that were there, right? If he's going to just drive them back out again. They've never inhabited pigs before. They don't know maybe what it's like. I have no idea, right? But they decide, you know what? This is better than Jesus destroying us on the spot. At least (laughs) they think that they're going to preserve their life. And what happens is that Jesus actually gives them their request. Maybe because they don't know what they're asking. I don't know. But Jesus says to them, go. Verse 13, he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000. Again, I love that Mark has such detail that he tells us that it's not just there's a lot of pigs. He says there's about 2,000 of them rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Again, of all the the possible scenes that you could have watched unfold in all the Bible, if you were to go and open your Bible and think to myself, what is like some of the scenes that it would have been awesome to maybe see and witness, right? Like, uh, the fire coming down from heaven and consuming the, uh, the sacrifice of Elijah and the prophets of Baal, right? Like, that would have been a pretty awesome scene to see. This one would have been awesome in a really terrifying and weird and gross and all those types of ways, right? All of a sudden to see this herd of 2,000 pigs just lose their mind, decide that we're going to go on this stampede, go off this cliff, and just drown in the water. And I know what most of you are thinking. Those poor pigs, right? And I think that too, because I think to myself, man, so much bacon, so much baby back ribs, right? Like all that just gone. Sorry, I'm not trying to be insensitive, but it's real, right? Think about the financial devastation to the owners, the herdsmen, right? Like this was a business for them. They... They might have just been put out of a job for all we know because this was their herd. But before you go all PETA on me, I believe that Jesus is demonstrating a very important point for us this morning. That Jesus cares about the one man more than the 2,000 pigs. That Jesus is so concerned for the one lost soul more than he is about a herd of pigs. And that's good, and that's right, and that's appropriate. We'll talk more about that in a moment, but this even maybe gives us a glimpse into the future, a picture of the fiery judgment that awaits Satan and those under his charge, that God is one day going to throw them into the lake of fire forever, picturing one day what God is going to do. But again, you just imagine everything unfolding here. And I love then how this story ends with two most unusual reactions. Really, we could almost say three because there's three interesting reactions here. But the first you get from the townspeople. Notice that the herdsmen fled and told it, verse 14, the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and notice this. They saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there clothed in his right mind. 
So think about that. This was the guy who was like of the urban legends, right? Oh, man, you remember? You hear the story about the guy who lives among the tombs, right? Like that guy? Supposedly he's out and supposedly he's fine. Let's all go. Like, that's what's happening here. And they go, and guess what? What's this guy doing? Just sitting there. Clothed. He hadn't had clothes before, but he's, he's clothed now. Perfect posture. Just sitting there like, how's it going, guys? And do you notice what their reaction was to this? They're not like coming around, hugging him, right? It says they were afraid. They were afraid because the power that they had seen in this guy display, suddenly there is a greater power that's on display because his issues are gone. And it's interesting here, verse 16, and those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and things. They recall to him everything that happened, and they point to Jesus and say, it was this guy, it was this guy, he was the one who did it. And what did they do for Jesus, verse 17? They came to Jesus, and they begged him to be their king, right? To be their ruler, to say, we want you, we, we love you. So, to get out. Yeah. No, it says they, in fact, begged him to leave them. They were met with the authority and the power of Jesus, and rather than embracing it, what did they do? They rejected it. The fear of what the power and the authority of Jesus over their lives meant, they were not ready for it. They say, this is too much for us. You need to leave. It was fear that caused them to push Jesus away. And it's the same reason that many people do that still today. Maybe even for some of you here in this room this morning. You have pushed Jesus away for most of your life. Because you're afraid of what it actually means for what you have to do to him. You have to submit to him. You don't see his authority as good and with your best interests in mind. They see a power and authority greater than themselves. And rather than submit, people run. And they push Jesus away, holding him as arm's length. Isn't it interesting that they saw Jesus in this story as a bigger threat to them than the demon-possessed man? Jesus was a bigger threat to them than the demon-possessed man. But as unusual as that reaction was, notice the next reaction as Jesus was getting into the boat, because Jesus is complying, he's going. The man who had been possessed with the demons begged him, begged Jesus, that he might be with him. You have the townspeople who begged Jesus to leave them, and you have the former demoniac who begs to leave with Jesus. Says, Jesus, I want to come with you. I'm ready. I I, I want to be with you. I don't want to be like these people. 
I, I can't bear the thought of not being with you. Jesus had shown grace to a man outside of the, the covenant people of Israel. Now he wanted to, to follow Jesus wherever he went. And if, I said this before, maybe there's three unusual reactions here because you have the reaction of the townspeople, you have the reaction of the demoniac. But notice Jesus' reaction and his response to the man's request. Wouldn't you expect in this moment Jesus to be like, dude, hop on board. Come along. We want you along for the journey. Your power, your, your story is going to be so perfect for the message that I'm trying to spread. And you know what Jesus says? No. No, 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 no. You stay here. Why? Because Jesus had much bigger plans for this man. This man had an effective ministry that would be, go beyond if he would have gone with Jesus. Instead, he says, I want you to go back. I want you to go back to your family. I want you to go back to your friend. I want you to go back to your country people. And I want you to do what? Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has what? Had mercy on you. Notice there how Jesus says, I want you to tell them how the Lord has done these things for you. The Lord, your master, equating himself with that, right? He says, I want you to tell people about Jesus. I want you to tell them what type of mercy he has shown to you. And guess what? He does exactly that. In many ways, this guy becomes the first missionary to Gentiles in the entire Bible. I mean, that is incredible. It reminds us exactly of what Jesus calls us to when he changes us. That he has changed us so that we would help bring change to others. So that we too might proclaim and tell others about the mercies of God. So what does this actually mean for us this morning? A very unique and challenging story in many ways. But what does it actually mean for you? Well, here's a couple points for you to ponder this morning. The first of which is this. That Jesus cares just, about, just as much about the one as he does the many. Here's what I mean by this. I, I don't think I had ever thought about this until this week when I was studying this story. Think about chapter 4, what we just studied last week. Jesus gets away from the crowds and everybody, the hustle and bustle, and he takes his disciples on this like whirlwind journey through the Sea of Galilee, right, where they almost die. They cross over to this location where they probably were for only maybe, I mean, by the time people got there, maybe a few hours, only to get back in the boat and leave again. Have you ever thought about it? They took this whole journey, Jesus took them on this whole expedition through this incredible storm, all for one person. He left the crowds, he left all of the hustle and bustle of ministry life up in Galilee to pursue one. One man. To change his life dramatically forever, only to get back in the boat and leave. 
This whole trip was all about that. It's startling for me. That was the first time I ever realized that this week, that that whole journey, that whole expedition was to change one life forever. But I think it also reminds us of a point that I brought out earlier. It reminds us that Jesus cares just as much for the one as he does the many, meaning also the pigs, right? It's a reminder to us of the fact that God created us as his image bearers to be his worshipers. And while animals are great, scripture very clearly prioritizes throughout that God cares above all for his people, for those who are made in his image. He reminds us elsewhere that you are far more valuable than sparrows. He reminds us here that you are far more valuable. Your life is far more valuable than 2,000 pigs. I don't know what the value of 2,000 pigs would have been, but again, the financial loss would have been huge to these people. Student, your life and your soul is far more valuable than any dollar sign. That's why Jesus will later talk about what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? What will somebody give in exchange for a soul? Here's the deal. Your life is invaluable to God because he created you in his image. He created you so that you would be a worshiper of him. Yes, your life is far more valuable than these pigs. Again, I'm not here to say, oh yeah, like the, treat the pigs however you want to. I'm just here to show you that This morning, Jesus makes it very clear what he prioritizes. And he cares just as much for the one as he does the many or the animals. Secondly, the authority of Jesus is good and it is worthy of your full submission. Think about the demon-possessed man here. And think about the fact that Jesus at just a word, sends out nearly 6,000 demons out of this guy. No problem whatsoever. We have to remind ourselves, especially because we look at the response of the people at the end of the story. When they were met with the power and the authority of Jesus, did they see it as good? They saw it as a threat. They saw it as a threat to their autonomy and their uh, individualism and what it meant for them. Jesus was dangerous. They did not see his authority as a good thing. And they certainly did not see it worthy of their submission. But I do think it's interesting to note that even when Jesus speaks and he commands the demons, that even the demons obey. So what does that mean for you this morning? I can't help but wonder sometimes, do the demons do a better job at obeying and listening to Jesus' commands than we do? What, what, what might we learn from what we see going on with the demons in this story and how we should think about responding to the authority of God in our lives. Thirdly, I want us to marvel at both the power and the mercy of Jesus this morning. We see with Jesus, somebody, uh, we've talked about Mark, who is both high and mighty, 
and yet also gentle and lowly. In other words, he is almighty God. He is powerful. He is above all things, right? And yet he is also lowly and accessible, and he is there to save and redeem sinners. Again, this is a guy who possibly had a background, had a story, had maybe a son, uh, maybe was a father, was a husband, whatever it may be. And yet Jesus entered into his hurts with both his power and his loving mercy. I think it's also a reminder for us this morning, and maybe for somebody who needs to hear this this morning, that you're never too messed up for Jesus, that you're never too far gone for Jesus to change your life forever. And if you're here this morning obeying or listening to that lie, that's a lie that comes straight from Satan. But the truth of Scripture reminds us that God is very clear there is no boundary that he is not able to reach beyond for the sake of his creation. And then fourth and finally this morning, I think it's the obvious of what we see in the life of what the demoniac was called to do. The only natural response that Jesus commissioned him for, because guess what? It's the same thing that he commissioned his disciples to at the end of his life and ministry. And that is go and tell others about what Jesus has done for you. This is a kind of a shift in the story because news, how many times have we watched Jesus over the first four chapters heal somebody, change their life? Hold on. I'm still with you. Stay with me. How many times have we watched Jesus heal somebody? And then what does he usually say to them? What does he tell them to do? Don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. What does he do here? says, go tell everyone. I think it's important to remember that most of the people Jesus had been healing and doing this with were Jews, and they were in Jewish territory. And so he didn't want there to be misconceptions about what the Jewish Messiah was there to do and make him this political ruler and all these things, right? But he's in Gentile land. He wants the message of his rule and his reign to start spreading in those regions because they're not going to have the misconceptions of what the Jewish Messiah is intended to do, right? And so he gives him free reign. He says, listen, I'm unleashing you, not just from this demon, not just from the chains that one shackle you. I am unleashing you now to be my messenger of power and mercy and hope to a lost world. And so I ask you this morning, student, if that's what God has done for you, if Jesus has done that for your life, the question for you this morning is this, how can you stay silent, right? How can you keep that good news to yourself? Jesus has released you and he has freed you so that you would go and tell others and proclaim to them what good things he has done for you. And cause others to marvel at his power and his mercy as well. So I pray that you would do that this morning. I pray that that would be something that would refine your understanding of what Jesus has called you to. 
We're going to be back together in two weeks. Next week, we're not here. We have a pastoral candidate coming, and so we're going to join together in this hour over in that building as we have a Q&A with uh, one of our pastoral candidates. That means two weeks from now, we're back here, and it's Easter Sunday. And guess what? The story that we're going to look at in Mark chapter 5, Jesus is going to raise someone from the dead. Awesome. Only God can do that providentially. So I'm excited for you. Let's pray. And we'll get you on out of here. Um, as you guys go out, by the way, go out these doors here, not these doors. Go out these doors here, please. And help us stack the chairs. But let's pray, and I'll get you dismissed. Father, thank you uh, so much for your goodness and your grace to us. Thank you for what you have revealed for us in this story this morning of your just incomparable grace and your mercy to this man. Pray, Lord, please refine us. Help us to see you as a God who is worthy of our praise and our worship, that your authority is good and only has our best interests in mind. And for those who are here this morning who are still struggling to believe that you are able to forgive them, I pray that this passage and this story would remind us of how Jesus left all the others to pursue the one who looked so far beyond saving and yet you did that for them. I pray that if that is someone here this morning, that you would help shape their thinking and help them to see Jesus for the merciful Savior that he is. I ask in his name. Amen.